Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on March the 22nd, 2012. I always start off by suggesting people use CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website and you'll find hundreds and hundreds of free audios for download. And hopefully you'll understand the system you're born into. It's very Orwellian. It's designed that way. And um, we're raised in a system... Uh, first off, by your parents, they indoctrinate you and by their own indoctrination. That's the beauty of indoctrination into a type of reality. Once you've, you've given it to one generation, they pass it on to the next. And then that becomes your reality as a child. And it's superimposed, basically, or, or, or super extended once they get into school. And school is essential, according to Jack Zillel and others who were experts on propaganda. Schools are, are really essential to make sure that future propaganda will take properly on the subject. So we're living living in a scientifically designed system. It seems chaotic, but it's not chaotic at all. Um, The big bank crashes were all planned years in advance, and it also ties in with the the move towards austerity. It ties in with um, the push towards higher prices for everything and less of it, including electricity. So the big boys are gaining for giving you less. And we'll, we'll consume less all, all around, basically, and pay an awful lot more. And so that's really what austerity is all about, bringing us into high pricing, which takes the cash out of your pockets and, um, and teaches you, too, that you can't really afford anything else except whatever state you're, you're presently living in. That's it. You're kept in a fixed position. All planned, all beautiful, too. Banks lost nothing. They were all refunded by the taxpayer who was put down as a guarantor for the loans the government's borrowed to pay the banks off. So it's a beautiful system. And, of course, what's even so strange is no one talks about changing it. You'll notice that. This has happened at least twice a century. The banks do the same thing. They always rip us all off, plunder the whole planet, and then they get rewarded by taxpayers' money and lose nothing at all, and they do it again. And then no law has ever passed to stop them from doing it, you see, uh, so, which means it's meant to happen again and again. Because, you see, those who own the big banks own the system. They own the world. That's why. And uh, boy, those boys who run the judicial systems as well, they're not going to pass any laws against themselves. Why should they, since they run everything across the planet? Rothschild said it too. He said, give me the rights to, to the country's money to supply, and I don't care who uh, pretends to rule it, because that's what it means. You're pretending to rule it. Money rules the system. Every prime minister, every president goes off and borrows cash from whatever central bank they have uh, every every year. So the guy in charge of the money rules the world. So no one's going to change it. Why should they? They're not going to. And no government would have the uh, gojones to even try. It just won't happen. Any individual who tries within government is generally comes. Well, they generally come down with a fast-acting cancer or a hit and run. Uh, definitely a sudden death of some kind or another, and they're quickly forgotten by the masses, because sadly that's how the masses are. 
And uh, they love a champion when a champion's going to get something for them. But if they fail to do it, it's right out of the mind. That's how the people really are. So remember to help yourself to the audios. Uh, you'll get transcripts as well on all the sites listed on cuttingthroughthematrix.com and transcripts in other languages than English if you go into alanwatsentinel.eu. And remember too, you bring me to you. You can help support me by buying the books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. From the U.S. to Canada, a personal check is good, and so is an international postal money order from the post office. You can also send... Uh, cash or use PayPal. Across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram and PayPal once again. And donations are welcome. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix. Just talking about really the system of banking at the top and then governments underneath them. It's been that way for a long, long time. An awful long time. Centuries, in fact. Centuries. And, you know, we, we know when the Rothschilds came into Britain and it was never the same afterwards. And every other country where the sons had gone into really did the same, same kind of system. It, it kind of just suddenly appeared and it's never changed since then. And then there's all the relatives of Rothschilds who took up over other countries as well. And it's, it's never been the same. And, and then a bunch of them got together, as I say, uh, in the late 1800s with the Rhodes Foundation to back them. And then combined it with the Milner Group. They were all made up with bankers anyway, the Milner Group. And they became the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And they sent out a lot of their sons even to do espionage work in countries, to start wars, foment wars, get countries fighting each other, and then they lent to them all. And it's all recorded in Carl Quigley's book, uh, The Anglo-American Establishment. And Quigley was uh, the professor, Quigley. He was um, the historian for the Royal Institute of International Affairs. He said that they were bringing in a feudal system, a new feudal system, and that's what we have today with all the big power groups, for instance, to do with electricity, oil, everything else, getting together and being the new kind of feudal overlords of the world. And, of course, everything is farmed out to them now from governments that just rubber stamp things. So it's already here, really. We're just going through the upheaval as the last few vestiges of uh, actually government-run projects are handed over to private companies. I'll put an article up tonight just to, before I forget, too, from Britain, but it's about India and how so much work is farmed out to India that they do all your censuses, by the way, and your tax returns for for, for the big corporation that's been uh, hired by governments, and which is actually one of the military-industrial complex boys. But now that how the Indians are selling off everybody's data, health, finances, everything, for for about uh, about two pence, two pence each, each name, all the data that you can imagine. I'll put that link up for anyone who's interested or cares. I think folk today don't really care because they don't mind having no privacy anyway. They won't mind until someone else uses all their credit cards and then charges them for it. But uh, that's the only time they'll react, perhaps. And then they'll say, well, somebody should do something about that. And we'll see what happens. Anyway, that's one thing I wanted to mention. And I also wanted to mention... And uh, uh, this one I'll put up tonight, Elke's Warning. It's uh, a woman who was brought up in communist eastern Germany 
and she, she was born during World War II, and then she came to the States, and she says she's warning everybody in the States, I see the same system here, all the loss, loss of rights and freedoms, and so on, as it's coming down here. I've heard so many people say the same thing, and uh, and it is true. These are, these are the first ones to see what's happening. The people who are in the system are the last ones to see because they adapt gradually as time goes on. I also want to mention, before we get into the main subject, uh, Poland's Monsanto action lays one thousands of, or, or thousands of dead bees on government steps. So... This is March 15th, over 1,500 beekeepers and their allies marched through the streets of Warsaw, depositing thousands of dead bees on the steps of the Ministry of Agriculture in uh, protest of genetically modified foods and their requisite pesticides, which are killing bees, moths, and other agriculturally beneficial insects around the globe. Well, I've known that for years because I've known enough beekeepers in Canada and the bees actually fly in different directions, different highs for it too. And the ones that were all coming back from certain specific areas, later checked out by the government, uh, were coming back all dozy and dying from the, the GM plants, uh, the plants that produce their own pesticides, and, um, and they're also heavily sprayed as well. This is the stuff we're supposed to eat. It kills off everything else, and of course they say, well, it won't, it won't harm you. Uh, anyway, they've known this for, for probably 15 years in Canada, but now Poland at least is doing something about it and bringing in uh, lots of the dead bees that have been out at these uh, saturated fields. And hopefully they'll go further if they stick at it and don't get distracted. Whenever big things happen and, and folk are doing something, we get distracted so fast with some other crisis that's man-made uh, from the top, of course, to get us off into something else. And... Another article, too, I want to put up quickly, is Too Crooked to Fail. Matt Taby says, bailouts fraud are the secrets to Bank of America's success. Just saying uh, that, which lots of us have already known for an awful long time, because the whole banking system is based on fraud. It's a power system. And this one came out of New Zealand as well. Little New Zealand, where nothing happens, you think. Uh, it says, opposition parties say New Zealand has been turned into a police state. Well, welcome to the club. After Parliament last night narrowly passed the government's controversial search and surveillance bill, Parliament passed the bill uh, by 61 votes to 57. It was opposed by the opposition parties and the government's support partner, the Maori Party. As his Greens MP Stephen Browning said, the, the legislation put the powers exercised by police in its heavily criticised 2007 so-called terror raids in Rotoki in the hands of many government agencies, same as everywhere else. These raids led to the trial of the uh, Uruwera Four, who a jury this week failed to reach a verdict on the, pl- the police's case, and they were part of an organized cr- criminal cr- group. They're still not sure if they were or not, but they passed this anti-terrorism thing anyway. Brown told Parliament the law went too far, and the evils of the bill go to looking at people's texts, their voicemails, putting bugs in cars, and uh, chat room videos. Thousands of innocent people could have their communications caught up in electronic monitoring, Browning said. Well, we're all getting monitored anyway. We always have been. Uh, says Mana Party leader Honey Harawiri says 70 different uh, government agencies could obtain surveillance warrants based on suspicion that a crime could be committed. A crime could be committed. This is what it's about. 
that goes way beyond what they have in Europe, in Canada, and even in the U.S. If someone was detained under the bill, enforcement officers could search a person's workplace and friends, he told Parliament. You don't have to be guilty of anything. You don't even have to be arrested. You only have to be detained. And just knowing the person can get you detained as well, no matter how vaguely you know him. As his man opposed the bill because it led to a police state. Don't worry, folks, you'll adapt quickly because everyone on this side has adapted to it here. It says, where the liberties and freedoms most of us now enjoy will disappear, where the powers of the police will be extended without the approval of the judiciary, where the powers of government agencies will assume more authority than the rights of ordinary New Zealanders, and where there will be an assumption of guilt not only on an alleged offender, but on anyone who knows that person. Huh. I guess you have to go back to all your old schoolmates and arrest everybody. And, you know, where enforcement officers can bug your granddaughter's phone, install a hidden camera in your daughter's bathroom, download the files from your wife's computer, and steal your files from everything, from even having to prove a crime has been or will be committed. Well, it's, it's kind of American style. And as I say, you'll adapt to it very quickly. Justice Minister Judith Collins says the new law brought order, certainty, clarity and consistency to a messy, unclear and outdated laws, she says. They put a lot of women in right now because they're going to take a lot of heat for women, you see. Because these are the ones who really seem awfully, they go by the book and they want to get a name for themselves and they've got lots of things to prove. So Justice Minister Judith Collins, she might even get a new uniform, all black and everything. Maybe you can get a hat with it too. There were a number of safeguards in the legislation to balance law enforcement and investigative powers with human rights values. We've achieved the right balance between the need for effective and modern search and surveillance powers and protecting the rights of citizens. Well, they always say that, don't they? So anyway, goodness uh, is getting bad. And God help you if you happen to know someone who isn't charged with anything but has their premises rampage through by the new world order because it's really everywhere isn't it it's everywhere and just for the guys who for for the youngsters maybe maybe they could avoid a lot of stuff that other generations were conned into to do with music and stuff but um i've mentioned for years how everything you see on television is fake i mean it's show business show business you see and even even the stuff that you see and can can testify that this is real is still show business. A lot of it is real and a lot of it is fake. But now they've got this massive money coming in, of course, with the different females they're using that we're, we're very little and generally have about 15 guys dancing around about or wearing very little as well. And, and it seems to get off and the young people, they get really, really high on this stuff. And that's all again promoted. And it says here, uh, Gene Simmons and Tommy Lee slam Rihanna for lip syncing. See, they mime everything. They mime everything because their voices are pretty rotten to start with. And in a studio, when you do the tape, you can, you, you can make it, you know, you can, you can even if it's flat, you can make it, you know, normal and if it's sharp, bring it down a bit. And, and that's what you do. And then they go on stage and they mime. They can't sing and do all this, these, this, you know, dancing around the stage at the same time. But of course, they don't tell the paying customers that youngsters very seldom figure it out. And they do the same with a lot of groups as well. Uh, same kind of thing. They've been doing this for forever, as long as I remember. But it's a press conference to announce that Kiss and Motley Crue's 40-date co-heading North American summer tour turned into a Rihanna diss session yet a Tuesday. 
And it says that um, outspoken Kiss bassist Gene Simmons stressed that the band's sets would be live, unlike Rihanna's stage show. And it's a show. It's a stage show. It's actually a staged show, you see. We're sick and tired of girls getting up there with dancers and karaoke tapes in back of them. Simmons said, according to Billboard, no karaoke singers allowed, no fake BS. He says, leave that to Rihanna, Shimiana, and everybody else whose name ends with an A. And um, Gene Simmons from KISS had strong words about the karaoke singers. And he says, after the press conference, Motley Crue's Tommy Lee supported Simmons' statements. No disrespect to Rihanna. Uh, She's a great singer, but we're in a slump for some uh, it's stuff that you drop actually uh, That has some per, uh, personality and appeal Beyond a bunch of pop stuff That's floating around out there he said I'm glad he said that actually Because I don't think I can bear watching another <clears throat> Award show That is just like a little better than American Idol And that's what it's going down to Back with more after this But sex sells, sex sells That's what it's all about And it promotes the same sexual behaviour to the youngsters Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix, and tonight I'd like to read some from 1984, George Orwell's 1984, to show you that that nothing really is new at all, because Orwell himself, or Blair as as his name really was, was brought up to be one of the sort of managerial class, not not the high ones, but really a high bureaucratic class basically, and... um, his father was, uh, I think it was the opium, uh, the, gov- the governor for uh, the Queen's opium fields in Burma, in fact. And they did have uh, the Queen's opium fields. Uh, now, of course, they have in Afghanistan and they're well protected by the same troops. But anyway, George Orwell had turned against, he was trained to push the socialist drive from university. He fought in the Spanish Civil War and then he met the real communists and realized that the it was all lies because they were told in Britain the communists were just the same as the socialists in Britain. And uh, he realized there was a bigger, bigger hand behind all this, the money boys, everything, and the whole idea of war, what it's really all about, etc. And he wrote 1984 and 1948. It had, the real title of it was The Last Man because the purpose, of course, is to destroy all manhood as, as such. Uh, especially men who would rebel against uh, uh, dictatorships and things like that. That was, but his publisher demanded a different uh, title, so they changed it to 1984. During uh, throughout the book, of course, um, you find that um, Winston, the hero or, or, or victim of the whole thing, uh, every, everybody's a Winston in a sense uh, who understands what's going on. Um, he's given a book to read. And it's a dictionary, the new dictionary, because they're always making the dictionary narrower and narrower until if you can't express something, you can't have any revolution if you can't express what you're thinking. And that was part of the whole thing. So you have no thought crime, no, like New Zealand, their thought crime is if you're, you might go and commit a crime, you think you might do, and uh, then your friends uh, uh, can also be pulled in too, even if they live in different countries. They've got nothing to do with it. But this is there's a different purpose behind all of this, and he explains it here. In the book is given by by Goldstein, who is supposedly the the, the bad guy, the, the enemy that doesn't exist. Um, the dictionary peels apart; every page peels apart to show you the the, the revolution. And of course, it's a setup to get Winston uh, pulled in and arrested. But anyway, it says this because they're telling the truth. 
You see, those who ruled in that age, in that, in that period, that place uh, of Brave New World, ran the whole show so they could afford to be honest before they grab you and torture you. So it says, ignorance is strength, you see. Throughout recorded time and probably since the end of the Neolithic age, there have been three kinds of people in the world, the high, the middle, and the low. They have been subdivided in many ways. They have borne countless different names, and their relative numbers, as well as their attitude towards one another, have varied from age to age. But the essential structure of society has never altered. Even after enormous upheavals and seemingly irrevocable changes, the same pattern has always reasserted itself. Just as a gyroscope will always return to equilibrium, however far it's pushed one way or the other, the aims of these three groups are entirely irreconcilable. And it also says at the top here, ignorance is strength. You're taught that, you see, ignorance is strength. And it goes on to talk too uh, about, uh, I'll skip up a couple of pages, but it says here, the aim of modern warfare in accordance with the principles of double-think. That's the ability to hold two opposing opinions in your head at the same time. Most folk do have that. The same is simultaneously recognized and not recognized by the directing brains of the inner party, is to use up the, the products of the machine, production in other words, without raising the general standard of living. And we found that happened uh, in World War I, for instance, um, and then you end up with a depression. So it uses up the products of, from basically all the tax money they take from you, uh, without giving you anything back at all. In fact, you're left with massive debt. And every, every shell that's fired, every plane that's shot down has to be replaced, you see. So it says, um, to use up the products of the machine without raising the general standard of living. Ever since the end of the 19th century, the problem of what to do with the surplus of consumption goods has been latent in industrial society at present when few human beings even have enough to eat. This problem is obviously not urgent, and it might not have become so even if no artificial process of destruction had been at work. The world of today is a bare, hungry, dilapidated place compared with the world that, that existed before 1914, and still more so if compared with the imaginary future to which the people of that period looked forward. In the early 20th century, the vision of a future society, unbelievably rich, leisured, orderly and efficient, a glittering antiseptic world of glass and steel and snow-white concrete, was part of the consciousness of nearly every literate person. Science and technology were developing at a prodigious speed, and it seemed natural to assume they would go on developing. Now, every 30, 40 years, they have the same story. They, they tell you, uh, in the 60s, they showed you uh, uh, people all dressed in Roman togas. That was in all the papers and how science was going to cure all ills. And it would be a privilege for the few who, who, who would work. You wouldn't need many folk to work, it said. And they've even rehashed the same stuff again. How, how technology and internet, everything is going to be so much wonderful as we go down the tubes. Anyway, it says, this failed to happen uh, partly because of the impoverishment caused by a long series of wars and revolutions, partly because scientific and uh, technical progress depended on the empirical belief or habit of thought, uh, which could not survive in a strictly regimented society. As a whole, the world is more primitive today than it was 50 years ago. Certain backward ears have advanced in various devices, always on some way connected with warfare and police espionage, have been developed. That's what we're all about today, police espionage devices. That's all we're working on. Back with more after this break. 
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, reading some extracts from Orwell's 1984. And he's talking about some development, to say development, and how backward areas have advanced. This is all from the, from the book that he was given uh, by one of the elite himself in order to set him up for being arrested and torturing him as a subversive, which still happens today, I'm sure. Certain backward areas have advanced and various devices, always in some way connected with warfare and police espionage, have been developed, but experiment and invention have largely, largely stopped, and the ravages of the atomic war of the 1950s have never been fully repaired. Nevertheless, the dangers inherent in the machine are still there. From the moment when the machine first made its appearance, it was clear to all thinking people that the need for human drudgery, and therefore to a great extent for human inequality, had disappeared. If the machine were used deliberately for that end, hunger, overwork, dirt, illiteracy, and disease could be eliminated within a few generations, and in fact, without being used for any such purpose, but by sort of uh, an automatic process, by producing wealth which it was sometimes impossible not to distribute. The machine did raise the living standards of the average human being very greatly over a period of about 50 years at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries. But it was also clear that an all-round increase in wealth threatened the, the destruction indeed in some sense, what was the destruction of a hierarchical society in a world in which everyone worked short hours, had enough to eat, lived in a house with a bedroom and a refrigerator, and possessed a car or even an airplane, the most obvious and perhaps the most important uh, form of inequality would already have disappeared. If it once became general, wealth would confer no distinction. It was possible, no doubt, to imagine a society in which wealth in the sense of personal possessions and luxuries, should be evenly distributed, while power remained in the hands of a small privileged caste. But in practice, such a society could not long remain stable, for if leisure and security were enjoyed by all alike, the great mass of human beings who normally are normally stupefied by poverty would become literate and would learn to think for themselves. And when once they had done this, they would sooner or later realize that the privileged minority had no function and that they would sweep it away. In the long run, a hierarchical society was only possible on a basis of poverty and ignorance. So you must keep the people in poverty and ignorance, as we know today. To return to the agricultural past, as some thinkers about the beginning of the 20th century dreamed of doing, was not a practical solution. It conflicted with the tendency towards mechanization, which had become quasi-instinctive throughout almost the whole world. And moreover, any country which remained industrial backward was helpless in a military sense and was bound to be dominated directly or indirectly by its more advanced rivals. Nor was it satisfactory solution to keep the masses in poverty by restricting the output of goods. It happened to a great extent during the final phase of capitalism, roughly between 1920 and 1940. The economy of many countries was allowed to stagnate, Land went out of cultivation, capital equipment was not added to, great blocks of the population were prevented from working and kept half alive by state charity. But this too entailed military weakness, and since the privations it inflicted were obviously unnecessary, it made opposition inevitable. The problem was how to keep the wheels of industry turning without increasing the real wealth of the world. Goods must be produced, but they need not be distributed. 
and in practice the only way of achieving this was by continuous warfare. The essential act of war is destruction, not necessarily of human lives, but of the products of human labor. Look at the price of each jet they have there, and even the missiles they fire, and so on. War is a way of shattering to pieces or pouring into the stratosphere or sinking in the depths of the sea materials which might otherwise be used to make the masses too comfortable, and hence in the long run too intelligent. Even when weapons of war are not actually destroyed, their manufacture is still a convenient way of expending labor power without producing anything that can be consumed. A floating fortress, for example, has locked up in, in the harbor uh, that, that would build several hundred cargo ships just to make the, this super fortress. Ultimately, it is scrapped as obsolete, never having uh, brought any material benefit to anybody, and with further enormous labors, another floating fortress is built. Mark 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, etc. And that's what you've got now. You had that all through the Cold War. Same thing. Oh, the Russians have this new missile. Oh, we've got to get the cash and, and, and build one equal to it and even better. And then back and forth and back and forth until all these multi-millionaires who were in the House of Lords and some of them in the Parliament too, the Commons, who were in on it too, and they, they had massive shares in it. Great, screwed the Russians on the other side, mind you, <laughs> worked both ways. So you always have the dominant minority profiting off of this stuff while they dish out nothing to the public except debt, you see. And so they love war. They love war for this kind of stuff. And look at all the things they've made even for the Gulf War and onwards. You know, the bunker-bursting bombs and, and they've got battlefield nukes that they can use on a small scale, all that stuff. And they think it's great. And you get a big, big bang, and, and, and there's another uh, $5 million or $10 million bomb you've got to replace. That's yeah, great, isn't it? So it talks about that. Plus, the, uh, that might exist after meeting the bare needs of the population. In practice, the needs of the population are always underestimated, with the result that there is a chronic shortage of half the necessities of life. But this is looked on as an advantage. It is deliberate policy to keep even the favoured groups somewhat near the brink of hardship because a general state of scarcity increases the importance of small privileges and thus magnifies the distinction between one group and another. And of course, uh, in Russia, all the bureaucrats and Politburo, etc., uh, everybody who worked for government lived in a, at an equivalent level of all their uh, opposition in the West. There's nothing they couldn't get, just the general population that lived in scarcity. But you also had all these different privileges at the top as well. Nevertheless, the few luxuries that, the, that he does enjoy, his large well-appointed flat, the better texture of his clothes, the better quality of his food and drink and tobacco, his two or three servants, his private motor car or helicopter, set him in a different world from a member of the outer party. He's talking about the inner party. And the members of the outer party have a similar advantage in comparison with the submerged masses who we call the proles. The social atmosphere is that of a besieged city where the possession of a lump of horse flesh makes a difference between wealth and poverty. And at the same time, the consciousness of being at war and therefore in danger makes the handing over of all power to a small caste, as their elite, seem the natural, unavoidable condition of survival. So that's why they bring it in. You're all in danger, you're all in danger, only we can save you, you see. And, and that's it's happened over and over right up to the present. War, it will be seen, not only accomplishes the necessary destruction, but accomplishes it in a psychologically acceptable way. In principle, it would be quite simple to waste the surplus labor of the world by building temples and pyramids, 
by digging holes and filling them up again, or even by producing vast quantities of goods and then setting fire to them. But this would provide only the economic and not the emotional basis for a hierarchical society. So there's got to be an emotional basis for you to obey them, you see. What is concerned here is not the morale of the masses, whose attitude is unimportant so long as they are kept steadily at work, but the morale of the party itself. Even the humblest party members expected to be competent, industrious, and even intelligent within narrow limits. But it's also necessary that he should be a credulous and ignorant fanatic, whose prevailing moods are fear, hatred, adulation, and orgiastic triumph. In other words, it is necessary that he should have the mentality appropriate to a state of war. And you can listen to these talking heads uh, from all governments today. They're put in charge of the wars, and they have to be fanatical about it. And they are. They're fanatical. So much so that they, they say it with anger when they're questioned about taking all the people's rights away. They're very angry when they get questioned about that. So the inner, the inner party and the outer party must be fanatics. It does not matter where the war is actually happening, and since no decisive victory is possible, it does not matter whether the war is going well or badly. All that is needed is that a state of war should exist, the splitting of the intelligence which the party requires of its members, and which is more easily achieved in an atmosphere of war, is now almost universal. But the higher up the ranks one goes, the more marked it becomes. It is precisely in the inner party that war hysteria and hatred of the enemy are strongest. In his capacity as an administrator, it is often necessary for a member of the inner party to know that this or that item of war news is untruthful, and he may often be aware that the entire war is spurious and is either not happening or is being waged for purposes quite other than the declared ones. But such knowledge is easily neutralized by the technique of double-think. You remember them all going up there, weapons of mass destruction. Colin Powell looked absolutely uh, ashamed at one point, but he went right back in it again and double-think. He knew it was all a lie. His belief in the party uh, gave him the right to lie about it, even to himself. Meanwhile, no inner party members wavers for an instant in his mystical belief that the war is real and that it is bound to end victoriously. Uh, and, and so the technique, as I say, is ancient, and what happens with the inner and the outer party is always, always the same. The pros at the bottom just adapt because they're told they're going to be all slaughtered and uh, etc. If they don't back them, they want to be safe. Nothing changes, eh? Nothing ever changes. So it says here, there are therefore two problems which the party is concerned to solve. One is how to discover against his will what another human being is thinking. Now listen, I'll say this again. This is an important little part here. One is how to discover, for, this is for the the, the party to, to can be concerned about and to solve. One is how to discover against his will what another human being is thinking, and the other is how to kill several hundred million people in a few seconds without giving warning beforehand. That's what really occupies those who are up in the elite. That's why they must have so much surveillance, because they're obsessed always, even for electronics. They're obsessed and know what others are thinking. You see? Another part is if, if, if things get out of hand, how do they deal with all those people? You've got to kill them, kill them fast. There's many ways to do it today. And it says, um, insofar as scientific research uh, still continues, that is a subject matter. The scientists of today is either a mixture of psychologist and inquisitor, studying with extraordinary minuteness the meaning of facial expressions. This was written in 48. So you've got all this stuff now done in airports, right? 
oh my goodness, you're looking at, you've got a frown on you, sir. What's on your mind? And they take you and interrogate you. Uh, and they try to call it a science. Something with the extraordinary minute is the meaning of facial expressions, gestures, and tones of voice. You've got all that going on all the time now. And testing the truth-producing effects of drugs, shock therapy, hypnosis, and physical torture. Or he is a chemist, physicist, or biologist concerned only with such branches of his special subject as are relevant to the taking of life. Yep. The best, well, most best-paced scientists you've got in the world are all working on creating new viruses to kill in biowarfare labs or new things to blow you up, uh, even death rays and all the rest of it too. They're the best-paid people of all in every country, not the ones who are trying to find real cures for things. So it says... Um, the testing of the truth-producing effects of drugs, shock therapy, hypnosis, and physical torture, or is a chemist, physical, or biologist concerned only with such branches of his special subjects as are relevant to the taking of life. In the vast laboratories of the Ministry of Peace, which is really the Ministry of War, because they're all stopped making peace, right? And in experimental stations hidden in the Brazilian forests or in the Australian desert or in lost islands of the Antarctic, the teams of experts are indefatigably um, at work. Some are concerned simply with planning the logistics of future wars. Others devise larger and larger rocket bombs, more and more powerful explosives, and more and more impenetrable armor plating. Others search for new and deadlier gases or for soluble poisons capable of being introduced in such quantities as to destroy the vegetation of whole continents or for breeds of disease. It's like Agent Orange when he sprayed it all over Vietnam to kill all vegetation so they could see the enemy. And of course, the people came down with massive cancers and deformed children and all the rest of it. And those guys were never ever questioned about their work because they were working for the country, right? They were working for peace by stopping a war, by killing everybody. Anyway, it says... um, it says, or for soluble poisons capable of being produced in such quantities as to destroy the vegetation of whole cottons, or for breeds of disease, germs immunized against all possible antibodies. Other, other words, in other words, germs you couldn't destroy. Uh, others strive to produce a vehicle that shall bore its way under the soil like a submarine under the water. That's the, the Rand Corporation that actually have them. Or an airplane as independent of its base as a sailing ship. Others explore even remoter possibilities such as uh, focusing the sun's rays through lenses suspended thousands of kilometers away in space or producing artificial earthquakes and tidal waves by tapping the heat of the Earth's center. So the, the Vosgo is massive scientific projects on the go, but in reality, when you look behind them, it's either for their own survival as a place to hide, or means of uh, detecting people who are dissenters, or by killing us all off. That's what war is really all about. And even when you think you're in peacetime, that war is always going on. Always going on. In all countries. And there's also got... uh, the war, therefore, if we judge by the standards of previous wars, is merely an imposture. It's like the battles between certain ruminant animals whose horns are set at such an angle that they're incapable of hurting one another, but thought it, uh, but thought it is unreal. It, uh, although it is unreal, it's not meaningless. It eats up the surplus of consumable goods, and it helps to preserve the special mental atmosphere that a hierarchical society needs. War will be seen as now a purely internal affair, in the past, the ruling groups of all countries 
although they might recognize their common interest and therefore limit the destructiveness of war, did fight against one another, and the victor always plundered the vanquished. In our own day, they are not fighting against one another at all. The war is waged by each ruling group against its own subjects, the people. And the object of war is not to make or prevent conquest of territory, but to keep the structure of society intact. The very word war, therefore, has become misleading. It would probably be accurate to say that by becoming continuous war, war has ceased to exist. The particular pressure that it exerted on human beings between the Neolithic age and the early 20th century has disappeared and has been replaced by something quite different. The effect would be much the same if the three superstates, instead of fighting one another, should agree to live in perpetual peace, each inviolates within its own boundaries. For in that case, each would still be a self-contained universe, freed forever from the sobering influence of external danger. A peace that was truly permanent would be the same as a permanent war. This, although the vast majority of party members understand it only in a shallower sense, is the inner meaning of the party slogan, which is, War is Peace, you see. And we hear all of these different phrases coming out of presidents and prime ministers' mouths as they pick the next targets, of course, to bring peace to the world or democracy and all the rest of the rubbish that they talk about. Because we've never had peace and we've never had democracy. Never. We never have had democracy at all. It hasn't existed. And um, you have to, as I say, read this particular book, George Orwell's 1984, because you've got to understand, he actually tells you the mindsets of each class of people and why, as I say, the bottom class go along with everything and how the elites uh, are always looking for new wars and terrifying the public. They're, be, they're going to be dissolved into the atmosphere uh, with these, within latest uh, terror threat, whoever it happens to be. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix and we'll go to the phones now. And there's Jane from Ontario on the phone. Are you there, Jane? Yes. Yep. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, well, Crump, I don't even know exactly what I want to say, but I just, I found that really interesting, um, the idea that, you know, the elite think that, uh, you know, the unsuccessful people, the, you know, the, uh, like the human animals that aren't, mm-hmm you know, evolved enough or whatever, we're not uh, psychopathic enough that we should all be wiped out. Yeah. But the idea that uh, if people weren't so dumbed down, they would, the ordinary people would start to realize that it's the elite that are really not necessary, mm-hmm. you know. But I don't think uh, people would be, would really want to, like, kill them or something. They would just, they would want to wipe out that, Mm-hmm. class of people, not not by killing them, but just by saying you have to be ordinary people like the rest of us. You don't get to uh, live off our labor. And Well, yeah, and, and the thing is power never gives itself up voluntarily. In fact, that's why power has this kind of stuff like the present, this world war on, this, on terror, which expands into all areas of life. They keep adding to what terror is. And a thought now could be terror, you see. And this is all to keep everything in its existing order. 
because those at the top have got lots of books out telling you why they should be at the top. And uh, Charles Galton Darwin said the same thing. It's because those classes have held on to power for centuries through their generations and proper breeding. You know, it's, there was a proper breeding. And um, that's a proof enough for them as to why they should always stay in power. But it's also the reason why they got their experts long ago, like John Taylor Gatto mentioned about the schooling system, to give those at the bottom almost a fake education, a very minimalistic but pretty well fake education that does not teach you uh, the proper abilities to reason, for instance, and use logic. We get almost fairy story. Well, we do get fairy stories for history, and um, we're kept at the bottom level of understanding. Even in research at school, um, they, they said that those students who do the repetitive stuff that the ones before have been doing for the last 50 years, same tests, in the laboratories, if you actually find something new, you must. The, the, the professor will actually put you off from publishing it. Yeah, but those aren't the really ordinary people. Like those, those, um, like that's not the lower level of. Personally, I, I think it is. I, I think it is because you're, you're, you're taught junk in university today. And what they do is they select certain ones with the psychopathic ability to go up the ladder from university to higher orders the ones that they can use. Um, and e- even uh, in the U.S., they, they admits that the Ivy, the Ivy League, they're talking about the sort of granite stone buildings, uh, that's where every, the real things happen. In England, they say the same thing, that the, the granite stone universities versus the, the red brick universities for the public, meaning the red brick ones, like Manchester, etc., are, are meant for lower caste orders, and they'll never be taught very much at all. So this whole society you live in is perfectly structured on behalf of the elite who already control and rule, and they intend to keep it that way. You could, you could get all the, the, the learning up to university level done by the age of 12, and you did have your degree then. If you really looked at all the time they waste and the rubbish and the padding they put into all the courses that have got nothing to do with it, you could have a degree by the age of 12. Easy. Yeah. But uh, thanks for calling. And from Hamish Myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods go with you.